Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. So last week, we, we touched on some, some introductory matters related to the book of Acts. One of the things we talked about was the title. Officially, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. However, as we study the book... One of the things that we recognize is that the title could just as easily have been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, inasmuch as the, the book really follows the spread of the gospel in an Acts 1-8 sort of geographical pattern, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this book really is about the, the Holy Spirit's work in those different spheres as well. The first chapter is all about the weight. You get this sense of, of anticipation, this sort of expectation as you, as you see this transpiring in the first chapter. You know, as I read through these pages of, of God's activity, I don't know, one of, the things that, one of the things I find myself longing for is a movement of God today like that first generation church experienced. Right? I mean, we read this, and, and sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think, man, Lord, Lord, do it again right? I read this thing, God, would you, would you move this way in our, in our generation? Would you move this way in our nation again? Uh, powerful preaching where Peter, they hear Peter preach and the listeners have no choice but to say, what do we do? What must we do to be saved? To, to have that happen again would be remarkable. A, a bold witness like Paul and Silas blessing God in the middle of the night while locked up in solitary confinement. Uh, a bold response to God like, like the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. If you go and you read Acts chapter 4, the room where they prayed when they finished was literally shaken by the Holy Spirit as a response to their prayer. I've never been in a church prayer meeting where the walls shook as a reaction to the prayer of God's people. Man, I'd love to be there, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you love to be in a prayer meeting where it shook so bad the windows broke? And I'm not talking about an earthquake in California. I'm not talking about that. But, but to see God move in such a way where the only thing that people could say is, well, you got our attention, now what do we do? It seems like those things don't happen anymore. Signs and wonders permeate the book where, where the apostles do remarkable things that contribute to the spread of the gospel. One of the things that we have to recognize is that we, as we read this, God's power has never been limited to the book of Acts. You know, it's not like we get to the end of Acts and God says, all right, I'm done. You're on your own. No more power, no more movement, no more, no more guidance, nothing, nothing else. You're on your own. And we look through history and we see that, that God's movement didn't stop at the end of the book of Acts. In the, in the 1730s and 1740s, the, the fires of the Great Awakening burned across the land. The impact of the revivals that happened in the Americas back in the 1730s and 40s had a direct impact on who we are as a nation. Uh, today, secularists will say it had nothing to do with it, but you can't look at history and see what God did in that time and in that place and what an impact it had on the founders of our nation and what an impact it had on the, on the infancy of this young nation. 
In the 1790s and 1800s, the Second Great Awakening began in Kentucky and Tennessee. It spread across the nation. The movement of God was so mighty during that Second Great Awakening that there was even a portion of upstate New York that was called the Burned Over District. And not because of wildfire. I mean, we hear a burned over district. That means something caught on fire and, and you know, they didn't get it put it out in time. But there was an area in New York that was called the burnt over district because there was nobody left to evangelize. The fire revival burned so hot that the whole, the whole region was consumed with zeal for the Lord. Even more recently, some of you may remember the Asbury revival of 1970 that started there in Asbury Sem uh, Seminary. The Asbury University student newspaper described it this way on the 50th anniversary of the Asbury Revival. The presence of God was so thick, you could feel it as soon as you walked through the doors of Hughes Auditorium. Students sang praises to God and lined up at the front of the auditorium to share testimonies. This was the scene at Asbury on February 3rd, 1970. A revival started during chapel that day and spurred 144 hours of unbroken revival on campus that eventually spread beyond the town. The day started out like any other day at Asbury. Dean Custer B. Reynolds was scheduled to speak. But instead of delivering a message, he invited audience members to come up and share personal testimonies because it was where he felt the Spirit was leading him. Soon after his invitation, a large group of students was lined up to speak. Within minutes, the Spirit came, and everyone felt his unexplainable presence, said a graduate of 1972. The greatest thing I constantly witnessed and experienced was our equality before him. We were all overwhelmed. The eternal power did not berate us, and conviction came because of his holiness enveloping us in love. That is with me to this day. The atmosphere was so powerful that students spent almost all their time in Hughes Chapel and classes were canceled for the entire week. And that was in many of our lifetimes, that revival that broke loose. You know, as you look around the room today and you look at our, our larger culture, maybe you find yourself whispering just this simple prayer. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. I wonder what it would look like for God to, to do it again. What would it look like if God's people began to express that as their hearts cry across this room and across this valley and across this state? Lord, would you do it again? What, when it comes to the move of the Holy Spirit today, a question we have to ask ourselves is very simply this. Are we functioning as obstacles or are we functioning as conduits? Are we positioning ourselves so that the Holy Spirit has reign to move through us and in us and, and in, our, in our spheres of influence, in our schools, in our workplaces? Is, are we living our lives in such a way that the Holy Spirit has that free reign over our hearts? Or are we living our lives in such a way that we are creating obstacles to the movement of God? This morning, I want us to turn our attention to the latter half of Acts chapter 1. And maybe as a consequence of our consideration of these words, we can condition our hearts better to utter this simple prayer. Lord, do it again. If you've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 1, I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words together, beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Luke the physician records it this way. He says, Then 
They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, not Iscariot. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst into the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these, you two, of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we come to you this morning, we ask the bold but simple prayer. Lord, do it again. So may we approach our faith with great expectations. May we be eager to see your movement. May we always be conduits to your work, never obstacles. Give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we look at these words this morning... One of the things you can't help but notice is, is a really simple fact. The apostles, I mean, they took the Lord seriously, didn't they? The apostles took the Lord seriously. All of the disciples there experienced Jesus' ascension. Every one of them saw it. Every one of them was there to experience it. It wasn't like the transfiguration. You remember the transfiguration where Jesus only brought a, a, a select group of disciples. It was, it was the whole group, the whole body was there to experience Jesus' ascension. They all shared it. Jesus had confirmed to them who he is. He had conquered death. For 40 days he taught them and met with them and interacted with them. And then here we find ourselves in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. They are engulfed in the glory of God. Notice that cloud that took Jesus out of his sight. When you see the cloud like that in the Bible, that's not talking about a, a cumulonimbus that comes down and, into, into presence. That's talking about the Shekinah present glory of God. They're there, and Jesus is taken up into this cloud out of their sight, and they've been given very clear instructions for what they're to do. They're to go to Jerusalem and wait on the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so they're all functioning under this remarkable expectation about what is about to transpire. 
Something's about to happen. That Jesus has, has told them, go and wait. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Go and wait and receive it. There is something big is about to happen because here is Jesus, the one who was dead, who is no longer dead, the one who beat it, the one who conquered it, the one who holds the keys. Here is Jesus saying, get ready. Something big is about to happen. I think about old Doubt and Thomas in John chapter 20. Poor guy, he expressed his doubts for just a moment. Just a moment. And we've labeled him for eternity as Doubting Thomas. I suspect he gets called that when people get to heaven. Oh, you're Doubting Thomas. Stop calling me that. Thomas said, you guys are crazy. Unless I touch his wounds, I'll never believe. Well, guess what old Thomas became real quickly thereafter? He became a believer. He was no longer doubting Thomas. He was trusting Thomas. He was believing Thomas. He understood who Jesus was. He believes. And, and you know, when you think about the resurrection, a lot of people say, oh, the resurrection of the dead can't happen. The resurrection of the dead, that's, that's something that, that Christians made up. That can't happen. One of the most convincing proofs of the resurrection of the dead is this. These men believed it. These men were, were convinced that this was true. Every single one of them was willing to give his life for this cause. Had just one, had just one, said, peace out, guys, this ain't for me. There'd be some credible doubts that we could explore. If just one of those guys, if Thomas had said, you know what, I see you, but I don't believe you, and I am checking out, you guys do what you want to do, I'm going to go my own way. If Thomas had stayed doubting Thomas and not trusting Thomas, if just one guy had said, this is not for me, there's room for skeptics. But every one of these men gave his life for what they knew to be true. They were cowards. But the resurrection of Jesus made them courageous. Not one of them left. None of them turned their backs. And everyone was willing to give it all for Jesus. Even the one who betrayed him. Even Judas. After it was all said and done, Judas could have, could have stood on the porch of the temple there and said, look at all these disciples who, who followed that man. We see where he's at. What happened to Judas? He was so overcome by the guilt of what he had done that he committed suicide. Even Judas is a testimony to the truth. They all believed. No doubt whatsoever. And what Jesus told to them, what, what he asked them to do next was crystal clear. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for not many days. Jesus sounds like he's getting ready to take his kids on vacation. Are we there yet? Not yet. We'll be there soon. Dad's in the car. We'll be there in an hour. Dad, you said that an hour ago. We're almost there. Jesus said, go wait for not many days. So they go back to the upper room. Looks like this is the same upper room that the disciples had the Last Supper in with Jesus, which is a pretty remarkable thought because it's the same room where Jesus promised the advent of the counselor. It's the same room where the Holy Spirit would make his first appearance. Had to be a large room. Their numbers began to swell, eventually reaching 120 folks. Turns out that not many days was around 10 must have been an interesting waiting period. It's not like they had a tracking number or something, right? 
It's in Holy Spirit's arrival time. You know, the Holy Spirit will be delivered to you, uh, you know, on such and such a day. They couldn't click the tracking number and say, oh, it'll be here in three days. They just had to wait. They just had to wait. Every morning they'd awake. Awaken, is, is today the day? Is this the day? Maybe it'll happen today. Like kids, are we there yet? Not yet. You know, I hate to say this, but I think there are days where I wonder if we take the Lord and his commands very seriously. I shared with our Wednesday night crew the about time that I spent in Nashville this week for the Southern Baptist Convention. It never ceases to amaze me how quickly we will jump to vitriol and nasty when dealing with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It never ceases to, uh, it, it shocks me as a matter of fact that how quickly we will jump to nasty in dealing with one another. You know, if we took Jesus seriously, we would never deal with fellow Christians with nasty in our hearts. We wouldn't. Because Jesus, that's not, that's not even in our ability to, to relate to one another. It's one thing if we let our anger get the best of us in the heat of a disagreement. I think we've all stumbled into that sin before, where, where something just got us got under our skin and we acted out of that anger. But a hallmark of true faith is even when that happens is a willingness to look at somebody and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I was out of line. That's a hallmark of true faith is when you mess up and you look at somebody and say, that was my fault. I jumped. I shouldn't have. But for our default mode to be nasty, well, that's got nothing to do with Jesus. You may be thinking, I don't think nasty is mentioned in the Bible, preacher. Thou shalt not be nasty. Is that a sin that I'm missing somewhere in the Word of God? And I will say that you were correct, that nasty is not mentioned in the Bible, but I will tell you that the word nasty shows up in the PBV edition of the Bible. That's the Pastor Brian version. And in the PBV, nasty is a catch-all for all of the works of the flesh that oppose the fruit of the Spirit. So that's all the things that fall into that category. If we took Jesus seriously, we would make sure to do what he said to do, and we would work extra hard to make sure that we're not doing what he said not to do. As I mentioned earlier, we can be a conduit for the movement of God, or we can be an obstacle. And I think one of the obstacles that we put up in, in the way of the Holy Spirit moving is what I call practical disbelief. Practical disbelief. What do I mean by practical disbelief? Practical disbelief is when we say one thing and we do another. That's practical disbelief. It's when we say one thing and we do another. We say we believe the Bible, but we don't apply its principles. And we as Baptists are great at that. We are called people of the book. And we say that we believe this is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God, but how quickly are we to turn our back on its principles when it's necessary in our minds? We say we believe it. We don't apply its principles. We say we're part of the church, but we don't put our spiritual gifts to work in serving the church. We say we want the Holy Spirit to move, but if that movement means staying in the sanctuary and confessing sins for portions of the next 144 hours, we might not be so eager to be part of God's move. I would ask you right now, just hold up a spiritual mirror, look deep inside it, and ask yourself the question, do I suffer from practical disbelief? Does my confession 
and my attitude exist in conflict with one another. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, but my attitude is reflected differently. That is practical disbelief. Is my profession of faith reflected in my day-to-day life? I profess that Jesus is the Lord, but my day-to-day life is not lived in such a way that reflects that profession. If that is the case, if that's what the mirror reveals, then that is an example of practical disbelief. Last week we talked about the fact that a good witness needs the truth, which we call the logos. The, The good witness needs internal consistency, which is our ethos, and a good witness needs passion, which is pathos. Too many times we affirm the truth. But we lack the internal consistency and passion for Jesus, which results in practical disbelief. If somebody said, do you, do you believe everything God says? You said, absolutely. You're never going to say, no, I don't believe everything he said. If you say absolutely to that question, I believe everything that God said, then when your life shows something different, that's practical disbelief. So they had 10 days to wait. They didn't know how many days they had, but turns out they had 10 days. So what did they do for those 10 days while they waited on the arrival of the Holy Spirit? Well, while they waited, turns out that they prayed. How do you pass those not many days? If you're not sure what you're supposed to be doing, well, you let your prayers reflect your expectations. They had just heard from the Lord, go and wait, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and it'll be there, it's going to be great, just wait. Well, what do we do in the meantime? Well, you let your prayers reflect those expectations. When you think of this church-wide commitment to prayer that they had, again, only 120 folks there. It's not a big church. 120 folks. But these 120 folks had a commitment to prayer. You see that their prayer was, was made up of persistency. They had a constant motivation to pray. At the end of Luke's gospel, you see these words. It says, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And verse 53 of Luke 24 says, they were continually in the temple blessing God. Ten days, they're in the upper room, they're in the temple. They're worshiping, they're praying, they're waiting. They're eager, they're expectant, they know God's about to do something great, and while they're waiting, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're, 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 they're giving God everything they got. I think we can all agree, persistency is a very hard quality to nail down in the church today. I remember when I was in seminary, <laughs> a group of seminary students are, are you know, they're supposed to be the you know, the rock-solid, you know, men and women of faith. They're the ones who are, they're, they're going to school to, to learn how to be pastors. They're, they're the ones, I mean, they're the soldiers in training, getting ready to go to the front lines. And I'll never forget the day that they decided to start a, a prayer ministry in seminary. And they were asking for students to man the prayer room for an hour at a time. And it became a, difficult to have volunteers man the prayer room for an hour at a time. And so it became a requirement of one of our classes that is a class requirement. You had to serve in the prayer room for an hour at a time. And I'll never forget the grumbling. How do you pray for an hour at a time? If we've lost the ability to pray for an hour, God have mercy on us. 
Uh, we've all lamented the, the impotent prayer life of the church today. But who's the only person who can do something about the impotent prayer life of the church? I'm looking in a mirror. It's us. It's us. We're the only ones. And we've tried to do prayer things in fits and in starts, and we know how it's been received. I would argue, though, that the only way the church today can tap into the power of the Spirit is that we would find ourselves connected to the power supply in prayer. You want to see God do it again? Well, it starts with God's people saying, if he's going to do it, then we're going to do it. And we're going to ask for it. And we're going to ask for it daily. And we're going to ask for it corporately. And we're going to ask for it at 3 o'clock in the morning when we're stirred out of bed for no reason. We're going to ask for it again and again and again and again because I don't know, I, I really think the only hope we've got in this world today is that God do a mighty movement. There's no other solution right now except for God do a mighty movement. And that movement begins consistently throughout history right here in his church. We also see unity was a characteristic of this praying church. They were in one accord is, is what we're told. They weren't trying to outdo each other. We're told Peter rose to authority. But notice he wasn't challenged. They, there weren't other people running for the lead. It wasn't like one of these goofy denominational presidential races where you got different people trying to vie for the authority. Peter rose up. Why? Because Jesus already said he would. He'd already been identified. There was no, nobody jockeying for a position. It wasn't challenged. They were all eager to move forward together. I'm sure that they had disagreements over preferences. I'm sure that somebody kept the temperature in the upper room at a wrong temperature and somebody was upset about it. But they were unified in purpose, and, and, and their agenda was God's agenda. There was no jockeying for position. If our churches today in our, aren't in one accord, we may be doing more harm than good. Thirdly, there is dependency in their prayers. We see all this worked out in the selection of Matthias. They had to replace Judas. They needed 12 because that's what you got to have to have a good number in the Bible. you got to have 12. You can't have 11. And so they had to replace Judas. And how do you replace Judas? Well, Jesus didn't give them a process. He didn't say, if you need to replace any of you guys, here's, here's, your, here's your order of events. You know, have quiet nominations, you know, secret nominations. We'll take a ballot vote. We'll do an interview. You didn't have that sort of thing established. So they're, they're trying to figure it out as they go. We're told that they cast lots. Some have criticized them for such an action. But we also need to remember that casting lots was the pattern used in the biblical text for discerning God's will. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 even speaks to this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision, decision is from the Lord. Somebody asked me why we don't cast lots anymore, and honestly, I don't have a clue. In the Bible, that was how God clearly made decisions known. In this decision, though, the apostles made it very clear that they were completely and totally leaning on Jesus for wisdom in making that decision. They had two guys that were qualified for this. There were two guys who, were, who fit the bill that they were looking for, but they leaned completely on Jesus to make the decision. It wasn't something that they figured out. They didn't have a resume and say, man, Matthias has clearly got the better chops on his resume. They completely and totally depended on the Lord because they knew they didn't have it within them to figure it out on their own. When the church takes prayer seriously, 
we're acknowledging our absolute dependency on God. Too frequently what happens in, in churches and even in our own lives, I know I've been guilty of this, take an action, and then we say, oh, Lord, by the way, I did X, Y, and Z. Would you mind blessing that? Lord, I decided to do this. Would you come alongside and bless that decision? Lord, this is what I, 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 I felt was right for me. Lord, would you come along and confirm that? We do that in church as well. We make a decision, and then we say, oh, maybe we ought to baptize this in prayer. And the disciples say, you're starting wrong. You start in prayer, and then let God lead the decision. We've got to get to the place where we lay ourselves fully at the feet of Jesus before action gets taken. So what's a second obstacle to movement of God? It's a weak commitment to prayer. Without prayer, it's hard to imagine God doing much of anything. All the great revivals of our time began with prayer. We need a generation of prayer warriors who will rise up and who will actually see prayer as a meaningful service in the church. Not just something that we PS on to the end of everything else we do. Not just a transition in our worship services. Or not just the official way we begin or end meetings. Because that's the Baptist doctrine of prayer. It's unwritten, but that's how we see prayer in so many ways. Well, that's how you start a meeting. Can you start a Baptist meeting without a prayer? No. That's how we end a meeting, right? Can you end a meeting without prayer? No. That's how we move things around the worship service because we need to get the musicians out from behind the stage. So let's put a prayer in the worship service right here so that they can walk out while everybody's heads bowed and everybody's eyes closed. And sadly, that is what we've done with prayer. If I were to stand up and say, we need some men who will be in a prayer closet during our worship service or during our vacation Bible school or during events like that, there'd be crickets. Am I wrong? We need a generation of prayer warriors who see prayer as a meaningful service to the church. And to see prayer as a really and truly a valid way to spend an hour or more together. Lastly, one of the things that's easy to overlook in this chapter, it's right there in verse 14. We see that one of the things that's starting to happen in this group of people is that damaged relationships are healed. Damaged relationships are healed. When you look at verse 14, let's go back and look at that just briefly. All these, the disciples, all these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The original language here indicates that we're dealing with a very specific particular group of people. They're named. We know who they are. The women likely included Mary and Martha and others who were close to the ministry. One of the things Luke does is he really emphasizes the role women had in Jesus' ministry. It wasn't just a boys' club. We know Mary was there, Jesus' mother. But pay attention to the very last part of verse 14. We're told that Jesus' brothers are also there in the room. It's again, easy to overlook this. Easy to miss what's going on here. In John chapter 7, verse 5, you don't have to turn there. John gives us just a very simple little bit of a nugget. And he does it. God, the Holy Spirit, gives him this for us to put in our pocket just to hold on to for a little bit. But in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told this. 
for not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Think about that. <laughs> Jesus' brothers, we're not Catholic, we don't believe Mary was a perpetual virgin. Mary had other sons. James, Jude were a couple of them. His brothers, younger brothers, did not believe in Jesus. I don't know. I, I don't have any siblings, and so I don't know what sibling rivalry is like. But I have a feeling that, that you, you have this, this uh, I bet it was almost like Joseph and his brothers. You know, here's Jesus, the, the, the child who's sinless. Mary never has to fuss at him. But old James, buddy, you know he's getting his rear end wore out. And so Jesus is, is, is sinless, never rebels against his parents, never has a crossword with them. And here's the other ones who, well, they're sinful. And so they don't believe in Jesus. And I would suspect that, that when, when you've got Jesus, the brother that they don't believe in, who's out in the community saying that he's the son of God, who's out in the community developing a following, who's out in the community touching lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and all these things, I bet there was some ridicule that happened in the family of Jesus to the point that his brothers did not believe. I bet there was a whole bunch of shame and embarrassment in this family. But here they are, right there in the upper room with the whole company of disciples. These were the men that they likely ridiculed, these were the men who were so naive as to follow their crazy brother, Jesus. But now they're all together in one accord, praying together, waiting together, and eventually we even see that they'll be serving together. I really do believe this. God's redemptive work includes our human relationships. God can mend broken pieces if we will give him the opportunity. Peter could have looked at James and Jude and said, you guys aren't welcome here. You mocked us. You made fun of us. You, you, told, you thought we were crazy for following Jesus. You're just a troublemaker and a rabble-rouser. You're not welcome in this assembly. But instead, they're welcomed. They become a core part of that upper room. Eventually, they become leaders in the church. All because God begins to do a work in restoring those damaged relationships. A third obstacle that we face in seeing God move are those damaged relationships in the body of Christ. I know I beat this drum a lot. I'm a drummer, I, I should. I beat this drum a lot. Part of the reason I beat this drum is because of preventative maintenance. It's good to be reminded of this on an ongoing basis because I know how easily it is for us to slide into that nasty phase. So this is preventative maintenance on one hand to, to make sure that we don't go nasty. But I also think it's important that we acknowledge that we've still got a lot of work to do. I mean this. With all of the love of Christ that I can muster. But if you're still holding on to grudges and bitterness for things that happened in this body 5, 10, 20 years ago. We 
when do you let it go? When does it stop? When do we learn to trust each other? When do we learn to talk to one another rather than talk about one another? The Lord's not going to move in a group of people that don't trust each other and don't get along with each other. It doesn't happen. But I believe with all my heart that God mends broken things. God mends broken relationships. And if God Almighty can forgive me of my wretched, nasty, sinful heart, if he can put me in a place where he looks at me as his friend and his son, how can I not extend that same forgiveness to my brothers and sisters in Christ? The Bible says that is the standard of our forgiveness. As we have been forgiven, so we must forgive others. How do we realize these great expectations? If you're sitting in church and you're wondering, what's stopping the Lord from doing something amazing today? What's stopping the Lord from, from looking at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church and saying, you're going to be the spark that creates a new burned over district in Walker County and Catoosa County and Dade County so that 200 years from now they're writing history books and they're talking about the day that God unloaded his glory and his power in that community and in that town, that God's power flowed through this valley like a flood. What's stopping God from doing that today? The first question is to simply ask this. You have to ask it honestly, and you better be prepared for the answer. Like the disciples when they sat around the table there with Jesus and he said, there's somebody here who's going to betray me. They all looked at Jesus and said, is it me? Is it I? So I asked God the question, is it me? What if the hindrance to God's move is, is me? What if the hindrance to God's move is you? Are we willing to do whatever Jesus says? Are we content to keep things as they are? I would invite you to join me in praying the simple prayer. Lord, do it again. I'm ready. Do it again. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for your word. It is all powerful. It is all sufficient. It is all authoritative. It speaks to us where we are and calls us to faith and trust. And it has demands and expectations that are placed upon us. And so, God, I, I pray that right now in these moments that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, might do surgery on our hearts. 
and that you might reveal to us today those things in our lives and our families that are preventing you from doing something great in our midst. Lord, I don't, I don't pretend to know your will for us. I don't have a gift of prophecy to see the future. But I do humbly ask God today, we've seen your work in time and space and history. We've heard stories that our ancestors have told us. So God, may it be our heart's cry today that you do it again. Right here in this place, in our church, in our family, in our fellowship. Do it again. And so God, maybe that requires us to look across the room at somebody that we've had a, an issue with for a while. And we deal with that today. Maybe that requires that we, we look in a mirror and ask ourselves, how seriously do we take prayer? Is it just a, something we do just to click a button on Facebook? Or are we truly asking for you to move in our midst? that we would ask ourselves the question, how seriously do we take you? Do we take you seriously enough that what we do today will affect how we live tomorrow? So God, I thank you for the expectation that we have. And I ask God today that you would move out of that expectation in our lives. Lord, do it again. pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.